0: Welcome back to the show today, guys. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation today because today's guest is somebody I could have talked to for just hours and hours. Michelle Goad is an operating partner at TCG, the Churnin Group. They are the firm that I think of when I think investors in great culture-shaping media companies. The Turnin Group has partnered with iconic companies like Barstool Sports, Food 52, Night Media, Cameo, The Athletic, Hello Sunshine, the list goes on and on. Now, before she joined the Trenin Group as an operating partner, Michelle was at Nike for four years, where she led their foray into social commerce and led their digital innovation for their Gen Z customer base. She joined Nike after actually selling her startup to Nike in 2017. So she was the CEO and co-founder of a conversational commerce app called PS Department that she founded in 2011. They had over 150 fashion and retail partners like The Caring Group, LVMH, Coach, Michael Kors, Saks Fifth Avenue, Net-A-Porter, Revolve, Farfetch, and so many more. They were named a breakthrough brand by Fast Company in 2017. They were featured in The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Vogue, L Today Show, You Get the idea. So we discussed, you know, selling her company, we discussed the state of digital innovation at fashion retailers and luxury brands. We go over some of her learnings from fashion and retail. We talk about what TCG does. And also, we actually do a little detour into my own sort of master plan, if you will, around turning my burgeoning platform as a creator into a women's media company focusing on business. And we talk about some of the things that I'm actively puzzling through right now as somebody who wants to build and scale this platform. It's a fun conversation. Again, I just love talking to Michelle. She has So much wisdom, and and she really understands not only the social commerce space, but also media, also women's media. We covered a lot of ground. And before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Livecom. Consumers want to see videos of real people using your products on your website before they buy. And the best tool I've seen for that is Livecom, plug and play tool that lets you add shoppable videos to your Shopify store so you can make your products come to life through shoppable UGC, product videos, how-tos, sizing explainers, and everything in between. It's all done with one click, no code embeds. Anyone can do it. You don't need a fancy dev team. They are an easy way to increase your conversion rates on your website, and they create a delightful and immersive shopping experience. So if you want to learn more, just go to livecom.com forward slash dolma, L-Y-V-E-C-O-M.com forward slash dolma. They're going to hook you up with 20% off in a one month free trial. So you kind of have nothing to lose. Go check them out. And without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Michelle Goad.
1: We are here today with Michelle Goad. We got connected because of the wonders of social media. I'm super excited to have you.
2: Yay. I would love for us to kick
1: off with you giving an introduction of yourself.
2: Sure. How detailed? Do you want to give my my bio background? Let's get in there. Diving in. So I currently live in Portland, Oregon, and my life backwards, I started my career in the fashion industry. I don't know why I started there. I love stuff. I love buying and selling things and the making of things. I studied economics and art history in school. So I kind of picked a lane of that I thought would give me both creativity and commercial and so went into fashion i was actually a designer out of school i did that for a year i was really not good at it and so i didn't enjoy it at all but i learned a lot i worked for donna karen and then i went to barney's and was a footwear buyer i ended up there because when buyers come in and buy the line they just pick things and, and leave and there's no feedback loop and i was like well why didn't they buy these other things these are really cool and it's opaque and so i had to go figure out why do people buy certain things and not others so i became a buyer learned that that was an awesome job i was at Barney's when we were doing like the sex in the city movies and you know footwear was the number one category it was the manolo blonic moment you know in new york city from there you see brands that pop and just fly off the shelves and some brands just are kind of sleepers what makes a brand fly and so i joined mark jacobs who at the time was creative director of louis vuitton he was on top of the world And he had invented the it bag. So at the time, I was like, whoa, how do you do that? So I worked for him for four years. I led retail merchandising and marketing for the brand. And that was during the first sort of big retail recession globally. For us, it was really painful and luxury. You have all of your volume is done through department stores. People were not going into the stores. It was really tough. And just looking at the strategy of these guys, they didn't have one right? It was about getting people in the store to buy. Digital was still kind of the underling, I guess, for why. And I had launched Barneys.com in 2005. So I would started dabbling in e-com, but it was still kind of the redheaded stepchild. No one wanted to do it at that point, which is hilarious to me now. You know, there wasn't a strategy. And I felt like at that moment in time, the iPhone had just come out in 2009. I was traveling all the time. I was on my phone all the time. And I'm like, this feels like where everything's going to go. And I don't know what it means, but I just know this is where I'm spending all my time, and I think a lot of people will. And my partner was in tech. I would come back from these trips and I'd say, Oh, people are texting their clients because they're not coming into the store. And he's like, Hey, you know, if we connected these two people, could that be a business? And, and I was like, Yeah, that, that could be a totally new sales channel for bricks and mortar. And so we ended up leaving our jobs. I started my first company at 30. It was called PS Department. We were honestly, I think, probably one of the first people to do multi brand shopping in an app painfully early. And when you think about the premise of connecting the two people, it was really building a messaging app right from the ground up with end-to-end commerce enabled. And what that is, is WeChat, except we didn't call it that. We didn't know what WeChat was. This is 2011, so we were building the same time. But it was the same insight, right? People want to connect and buy through messaging. And so started that business, that was a really interesting journey. And, you know, I won't get deep into the world of fashion. And unfortunately, there's lots of friction in terms of adoption of new forms of commerce and just brand protection. Right. But we made huge strides in that industry. We grew the business triple digit every year it existed. I ran that company for six and a half years, did deals with every brand and retailer in the world. And it took a long time to do those deals and ultimately felt like, okay, where do you take something that has so much traction in terms of consumer spend. And you know, our customers love the app and they used it so many times a day. But the reality is we were an affiliate business and that's hard it's slash impossible unless you're massive amounts of volume coming through it. And in luxury, you just don't see that type of behavior specifically on mobile at that time. And so I had thought about okay, what do we do with this amazing experience that we've delivered? And all of the standard people that you would have thought in fashion were at the table, like, oh, this is cool. We want to integrate this, et cetera. And ironically, Nike was one of those people because they had just come out saying, hey, we want to pivot to DTC. They were partners of ours. We had a relationship there. And it was a Where was this? This was 2017. So right at the beginning. And, you know, I made a, a life decision where I was like, I don't really want to stay in luxury anymore. I think there's something more interesting. And I've been in D2C at that point forever. And I really know how to do that. And I want to help the biggest brand in the world do it. And so we did it. We did the deal with them. They bought us out of our company and we moved our family to Oregon. That was a big change. And so I joined Nike Direct. The president of Chief Digital Officer were the people that I had relationships with. I sat in digital product and retail. And my first job was really one build PS for Nike. So that meant launching conversational commerce. And then it brought into to help us define and drive consumer right experiences that deliver stronger LTV. So that came from looking at the end to end experience in retail and digital and really streamlining those things. And mobile across all channels helped ship the WeChat mini app in China, like did lots of things that helped drive LTV. And then after two years of corporate, I just felt really saddled because you're dealing with, I had a 23 person org at PS, this was a 10,000 person org. And you have so many stakeholders and it takes so much longer than it should. And it was really tough. And so there was an opportunity to join the president of innovation at Nike. And at that point they were looking at, okay, we wanna potentially expand the physical product into teens. And I was obsessed with what was happening with TikTok and Shein, and nobody was talking about that on campus. And what did they do that was successful? They built their business off the backs of teen girls. And why did nobody care about that customer? And so I took the job, really, one, because it, of course, helped the brand. But two, I was just fascinated. I was like, oh, this might be my next company, right, that I build eventually. So I took the job, ran Gen Z Innovation for Nike for two years. It was awesome. Built the first social commerce product that Nike shipped. All of the social commerce and integrated social commerce and anything in that that sort of cross intersection of creators, social and commerce and mobile in one. And in that work, started to really think about what the future was going to look like. I had another kid and it gave me time to think, okay, do I want to keep doing this for Nike or do I think there's a bigger play here to be had. So ultimately, decided to leave and start consulting for a bunch of different companies. I want to learn everything that was happening in that space. And TCG, of course, was a leader in that. Ultimately joined them as an operating partner. And now I'm doing that and incubating lots of stuff and having a lot of fun. I have so many questions.
1: I'd love to understand what your learnings have been from being at these legendary luxury brands, right? Because we see the glossy outside, but we don't see the messy. And what are some principles you've learned, whether it's about operations or culture, what distinguishes,
2: like you said, the brands that flop or the brands that actually are doing well? So I laugh now looking back at my time at Nike, because when you do digital transformation in any brand, you have this culture clash, right, of people who are purest in the brand management form. And then you have digital natives who are like very ROI driven and very data driven, right? And I will tell you all of the brands that we talk about, almost none of them have any sense of data driven decision making that have gotten them to where they are today. So all the things we obsess, I'm like, okay, we can throw those out the window because that was not the playbook that they used to leverage and grow. What they did was have very clear brand plans and brand messaging. And something that I talk about often for brands is when you think of the largest global brands that come to mind, they often stand for one thing in the consumer's mind. Nike is sports. Apple is innovation. Shopify is entrepreneurship. And when you think about the brand, whatever it is, if you can't articulate that in a succinct way, you likely need to do the work to figure out how to do that. And so I think knowing exactly who you are and who you're not is really critical. The second part on the operational side, and I will speak more on the luxury business, they're in the business of brand protection, not brand innovation. And I think that's an important nuance where they're going to invest capital is not in the latest and greatest thing. They That is way too much risk to absorb. They don't need to be first movers. What they need to do though is ensure relevancy for brands, right? And so I think for anybody who's trying to pitch in and get deals done with these people, it's oftentimes not necessarily the revenue growth that's gonna resonate with these people. It's relevancy, right? How are you ensuring this brand is relevant for today's consumer and beyond? So those are a couple of things. I think also on the luxury side, It's a formula, right? You have an awesome creative director. You put in an ex-McKinsey person as the CEO, and it is a wholesale play with accelerated investment in digital, and that is the playbook. And I think that, you know, as much as we want to push and evolve those areas, it works. So why do they need to evolve? They probably don't need to, right? So those are kind of key things, I think, to kind of use as a guiding principle when you think about those brands. I think you're talking about what makes a brand hot. It's it's the ability to tap into relevancy that is going to determine if someone's successful or not. Now with social and brands more accepting of social, which took a long time, but they're there, I think that they're starting to figure out, okay, this is an important part of my strategy from brand management. And there's huge transformation that has to happen as a result because it's just sort of it's a completely new muscle for them to use. When it comes to that formula that you referenced,
1: what elements of that formula do you think are the weakest or most ripe for description?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Most of these brands still think in terms of I'm speaking specifically in marketing now. They still think in terms of print. So when they do campaigns, the distribution that they think about is almost always the legacy distribution channels. And I think it's yeah, it's it's crazy that organizations are still structured that way. Social is an afterthought. And so I think you know, a big weakness of these folks is understanding the fluency and attention that is on social and how to leverage it in a gross minded way. Number one, I think digital, it's a blind spot for these folks. Like that is not their strength. Almost always the CEO of these companies have no digital background and they historically didn't need to, right? Because most of the business is done through wholesalers. But as you see wholesale and department stores continue to decline, I think it's going to be a problem in the long term for these brands. So those are kind of the two big boulders. But ironically, without it, like if you have great product and a great brand, you can become enormous. So not necessarily deal breakers. For
1: are there any brands you consider exemplary embracing innovation and digital?
2: Oh, my gosh. That's an awesome question. Amazon. I mean, they don't have physical retail, but I feel like their experimental culture is something that I wish multi-brand had embraced 20 years ago and didn't. I think they have been really smart about that. And unfortunately, because so few embrace that strategy, you're seeing the results of that every day. So, yeah, you don't think of them as a a premium brand, but I consider them a luxury because they save me time. So I love that.
1: That's interesting. When I started on TikTok, I was not thinking I want to become a creator. I want to grow. I want to do brand deals. I not thinking about any of that, but it started to gain traction. And the first brand to reach out to me was actually TikTok because they were starting this other channel where they wanted to showcase the ways that different businesses and industries were using TikTok. They assigned me basically all these different topics I could choose from, and one of the topics that I made a video about for them was what luxury fashion brands are using TikTok well. One was Gucci. Gucci is actually very oh, they're, in, they're incredible. They're, they're so in good, and they're also really good at catching trends that have emerged organically and then making it their own and creating this whole campaign out of it. So I I really give them props for that. And then the other one that kind of does something similar, it's a surprising
2: one is Montclair is actually good at that. oh wow, ex Nike guy runs their brand, so that makes oh, sense. Okay, well- <laughs>
1: It yeah, it. Sense. yeah. yeah it, was, it was few and far between. And there were so many accounts I looked at where I was like, this is such a missed opportunity. There's zero native TikTok content here. All of this is just clips from the runway shows. This yep.
2: is a massive missed opportunity. What are you doing? That's so true. You know what is interesting? When I started my job running Gen Z Innovation for TikTok, I hosted this 85 person workshop at the brand. This is a great example. And part of that was asking everyone in the room, You know, raise your hand if you're on Instagram. And obviously most of the people are on Instagram, raise your hand if you're on Twitter. You know, most of the people in the room, raise your hand if you're on TikTok. One person in the room was using TikTok and she was a kid's footwear designer. And that's why she was on it. And I thought that that was really interesting for a few reasons. You have to sell these things in to people who don't use the products, right? And it's really tough to do that. So imagine trying to convince somebody who will never use this app that it's important <laughs> to do that. It's tough. Yeah. So yeah, that may, I, it makes sense. They, I feel like most people are like, yes, we know it's important, but how do you get in the game and how do you even leverage it? It's all seen as risk, right? True. So I get that. That makes sense.
1: I mean, to this point about how difficult it can be to pitch some new digital innovation to these very ossified organizations, what was the biz dev process like with PS department? How Did you pull it off? And do you think that there's a version of it that could exist today where it would be more timely? Do you think Doing that at a different time would have been easier as far as just being able to get these brands on
2: board. Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, the fast answer is absolutely. Like we were just so early. Affiliate really didn't exist when we were pitching in. So we had to convince people who only distributed through wholesale and their own channels to give us a cut of revenue. And there was no model for that. Right. And so looking back, I laughed. So I'm like, God, people don't really look at channel economics like we nerds, you know, and digital do. They just didn't. That was so painful. You know, I've spoken to so many people and I keep up with this space, you know, since then on, well, what do rev shares look like now? And has anybody broken through? I think there are industries and verticals that are now looking at dropship models like they weren't before. You're starting to see healthier margins flow through in the like 25 to 30% range, which you can you know squint your eyes and see a profitable business out of that still tough business to run but you can see that working in a good way so yes i think now it would be easier quote-unquote to do i think the moat in inciting those brands is still very real brand protection is the number one thing that is going to cause someone to not do a deal and so having a locked idea of how to how to help brands navigate that's super important but it's still you know it's tough like it's tough to run a business on those types of margins i love social commerce it's my favorite one of my favorite's spaces to look at. And any entrepreneur trying to get into this space, that's always my like red flag of like, hey, you have to get hundreds of deals done in a very short amount of time. And it's super hard to do that. What's your in, you know, how are you going to do that? So I would say definitely now I think is, is a much better time on the actual BD process for myself. So that was the first time I had ever done m which I consider a blood sport. So it was an interesting process. I will use that word diplomatically. The reality is, I will say looking back, I'm so grateful as hard as it was to work at a big company from that transition, I'm so grateful that I did because now I have an understanding of how the other side of the table thinks about those deals. And when you approach a big company or you're trying to sell your company, you have to think of it in that way. It's not the vision that you were historically selling to investors. It's the strategic value and the acceleration that you can provide in a joint effort. And I think speaking the language. Language also helps. I suggest to every entrepreneur to work with someone externally because if you did not come from a big company, it's super hard to understand how these folks think. So I'm not a, like
1: like an advisor, consultant, or like a
2: lawyer who does a lot of M and A, or who would be the best person to bring on to guide you. I think anyone who's done deals before can help because if you've done a successful deal, you know and understand the process. That would be at the like lowest friction level. Obviously, if you can afford to hire an investment banker, those are the pros. But you know, I think there's lots of gray area and, and your investors might honestly like have that skill set. Most of them do. So you've got to get someone at the table that speaks the language. And then for me personally, it was learning the hard way of how do I put myself in their shoes? How do I take myself out of my own company, look at the strategic value that we can deliver and create a narrative that aligns with their strategy, not about your strategy? right? You're the small guy in that conversation. So I think that those are really critical components that helped us find synergy. And now on this side of the world, you know, I'm constantly looking at where is everyone going? What's their strategic narrative? And how are all these puzzle pieces going to fit together? And thinking about your business in that way can help you just, honestly, on the smallest, most Minutia level, you make decisions every day of how you're spending your time and resources and budget, like make sure it's laddering into something that matters. So I think that that's where I would recommend people rethink how they're Thinking about their business if they want to ultimately exit to a big co.
1: So to recap, understand the strategic value of your business to a larger acquirer and Mm -hmm. be able to articulate to them. Find somebody who can help you,
2: who understands M&A. And then what else? This is going to sound horrible, but I think when you're in those processes, you have to take the emotion out of your relationship with your own company and realize that you're going to be stepping into a much larger, totally different environment and job. And so framing yourself and your mindset to get ready to change is really critical. Like you're no longer the big fish. You're one of many fish. So I think I think it's mindset would be the third. I mean, optically, selling your
1: startup It sounds like it was your first startup, right? Yeah. Selling that to a brand like Nike seems incredible, like an incredible outcome. But when you started PS Department, did you think about the exit opportunities? Were you thinking about M&A or were you just like, let's start this company together, this tech company and see where it goes?
2: Yeah. Well, when it was my first company too, I was coming out of luxury fashion. So all of these terms didn't even exist for me <laughs> at the time. I wanted to sell PS department to a department store because I felt like it solved a strategic gap for them and we could accelerate their growth through this hybrid model. The reality was these guys were so behind digitally, they were never going to invest in something like this. And I obviously didn't learn that until way later down the road, but that was a reality. What gave me the confidence to start PS was in knowing we were solving a real problem and I felt like they didn't have the team or resources or talent to do it. What in reality happened was the people that we secured LOIs from beyond Nike it was all like digital native companies none of the legacy people would do the deal which I thought was fascinating to me because it was totally not the intention and ultimately the deal with Nike was was for myself and my co-founder it was more about the people than it was the IP so it didn't even end up in you know the outcome that I had intended the business to obviously be situated in but still a great success story for us I think I don't know it's like you look back in MA and and you think about you could be as strategic as possible but market conditions change investment strategies change now knowing what I know I'm like it is such a miracle when people get these deals done it is like I think for any founder who is doing BD themselves. Once your business starts working, those things come in all day long, right? You're probably getting brand deals all the time now because you're getting traction and you're like, oh, cool. MA must be just like this. It is not at all. Like it does not work like that. The odds of closing of these deals is so much smaller. It's a totally different game. So I don't know. One of my best pieces of advice in this is take those inbound requests that you get in m a very seriously. Like they are not going to come knocking down your door that often. So I would highly recommend taking those seriously and understanding your own risk, right? When you say no to those, well, how confident are you that you're actually gonna be delivering on this valuation that you put on your back? Is that a reality or is there a lot of risk? And be confident that you can overcome that. Otherwise, the deal is probably the way to go.
1: That makes a lot of sense because if you're fielding those inquiries and at least starting the relationship and starting those conversations, if something happens where the market has a downturn or there's, you know, MA deals are drying up, you want to be able to get ahead of that. And it sounds yep. like, you know, there's a lot of courtship involved in
2: this. Oh market, yeah, probably. it's months. You're dating to get married, <laughs> you know? So it's like, you don't just go in. I mean, I don't know. Look, everyone's process and experience is so different. But in ours, it was, it was months and months and months of yeah. conversations and years of relationships at that point. And so for people who are thinking about that, I always recommend starting BD deals start there. That's yep. the lowest friction way. And then see where it goes. If you love working with the people, then there's probably a real synergy there.
1: I interviewed Juru, who's the CEO and co-founder of Hero Cosmetics, and they had a really tremendous outcome last year. They sold for I want to say 630 or 650 million, and you don't see a lot of those deals at that scale in beauty no. right now. So it was huge. From, and I was interviewing her, and she was, you know, really describing what that process was like. And she was like, "Me and my team, we were basically on call. They had me out for months and months and months, and at every single point, there was the possibility that." all of it could have been nothing. It could have completely fallen apart. And I was like, that sounds like a nightmare.
2: It is awful. We had two of those things happen. We were like, yep, we're doing the deal we're going to sign. Poof. I mean, the darkest times, I think of probably every founder you talk to these days, most likely because they're so fragile, these deals. So I would say another piece of advice in this space, because now you've inspired me, of course, is if you are trying to build companies that that is what you have in mind. It's not something that necessarily you want to run personally forever, but it's something you're like, oh, I think this fits into a bigger narrative, et cetera. Make sure you're picking verticals that actually do deals to begin with, right? Another learning for me was luxury fashion doesn't buy technology companies. Like there are almost no, you know, little to no examples or benchmarks in that space. And I had no idea, you know, of course it was my passion, so it didn't matter. But I think it's important for those folks who are starting businesses, look at the MA activity. Like beauty actually has lots of different benchmarks of conglomerates and hold codes that acquire. Whereas in fashion tech, there aren't that many examples of scenarios like that. So I would always set yourself up for success. You know, there's always going to be outliers in these things. But if that's the type of play you're looking to run as an entrepreneur, just be smart about the realities of exit opportunities.
1: And at least know your options, right? Now that we've started to touch on it, you have been at these luxury fashion houses and you were a startup founder and you exited. Having had these various roles in your work experience, did you like being a founder? What did you like about it? What did you not like about it? Would you ever do it again?
2: Oh, wow. Did I like being a founder? I loved being a founder. I loved building the most incredible team. I loved seeing the thing that you imagine and dream up in the hands of so many customers and bringing them joy. And that there's no other better feeling to me on earth than that. I think when I joined corporate, It was eye-opening how distance you get from the end consumer real quick. And that felt odd to me. You know, I love to this day, it's crazy, five years later, people still write about our app. (laughs) It's just like been that long. So I had no connection to our consumer in the corporate context, which felt really, you just, you're so removed from it. And I didn't really like that. And so... I think the idea of building is something you just can't shut off. So ultimately, yes, I'll probably build stuff and experiment with stuff, hopefully for the rest of my life, as long as I can. I think doubling down on something, it just has to be like very special and interesting enough to do it. I think that's the other part. So I kind of, in my current state, I play a hybrid where I build stuff and I also help other founders and I help corporates. So I kind of play every piece of the table. But yeah, I'll never not be building something. Can
1: you talk more about your role now as operating partner? TCG, first of all, for those who are not familiar, can you say more about what TCG is and what your role is like?
2: Yes. Yeah, so TCG Turning Group is a multi-billion dollar growth equity fund that sits at the intersection of content to commerce and community. Lots of amazing early deals before that was even a thing in things like Barstool Sports and Hello Sunshine. And my role as an operating partner is twofold. One is to bring the zillion years of experience that I have in helping businesses grow digitally to the portfolio. So that can be honestly anything from here's how we took you know nike from whatever two billion to five billion and like these are the tactics we use on the e-commerce side to you know okay we're wanting to stand up social and influencer strategies like how do we help the business think about viral loops in that space like i kind of get high level and in the weeds depending on what it is so that's part of it the other part is looking for deals so who has the attention of consumers And who's making noise and who has an interesting community? And is there something to be done that serves a need that that isn't really addressed that can be much larger than it is today?
1: When you say looking for deals, is that generally, because but not in great detail, does that typically entail brands that are content first and monetize usually with some sort of commerce Mm -hmm. in an effective way? Or do you ever do the opposite where it's commerce first and they happen to be excellent content?
2: Yeah, I feel like there's, there's examples on both sides. And so there's not one way. I think, you know, historically, you look at businesses that most likely started as media co's, I think that's, you know, most of the deals kind of look like that, or sorry, rather companies in the portfolio look like that. So they started as media companies, they grew, they have incredible top of funnel engagement. And then they either want to add commerce as a next, you know, level of the business and brand. So that's where, you know, that would be under it. And then that's the growth strategy, or they already have both. And the idea is let's tack on more top of funnel creators to make this a broader play and accelerate commerce by up leveling the system. So a lot of media companies will start out as an affiliate as an example and let's like actually build a proper commerce operation to support that. So those are just different examples of of different takes of the TCG portfolio.
1: I mean I'm on your website right now and I'm looking at the portfolio page and it's quite a range of things ranging from Mr. Beast and his team and Aura Ring, Love Every, Crunchyroll Food Fifty T quite a range. Are there specific business models that you guys are bullish on right now? Because it sounds like you guys have had experience with quite of variety.
2: Yeah. I think as, you know, this is more of a broader thing even beyond, I think TCG is at the heart of this, but even broadly speaking, you saw the impact that happened with iOS 14 and costs are only going to continue to increase to acquire customers. And so folks who have a direct relationship and have built content and media around a specific niche or vertical are the types of people that we're most excited about you know when you think about okay well that's cool there's a lot of people in that space i think the next step to that is proving that that audience is viable meaning they will buy things if you sell them there is a a true commerce opportunity that isn't the case by the way for all creators and influencers some people can grow enormous audiences but they just don't have that relationship with their audience to where they'll buy or they're able to convert. So we're always looking for stuff like that. And I do think having passionate niches is also really important because, you know, if you're trying to be everything to everyone, like that's super hard to build a big commerce business off of. So, kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation, like you have to stand for something as a brand to become a, to move from a personal brand to a consumer brand, you have to stand for something. Just one glance at your portfolio and I can see that you guys,
1: lean towards cult brands basically i mean Barstool sports the target audience but that is a cult brand yes you know everything about brand and Hodinki with their watches right very active engaged niche community of watch lovers i'm guessing you guys have done this a number of times you probably have a combination of qualitative and quantitative things that you look at I'm not sure how do you measure passion how do you gauge whether the sort of like affinity is there
2: yeah, it's interesting because most of the most of that is done at the thesis level, right? So it's looking at what are the areas that are popping that are getting people excited. Are they big enough and engaged enough? Meaning people are showing up frequently to support something large. And I think Food Fifty Two is a great example where if you look at food talk and just in the insane explosion of food content, the answer is yes. Food as a vertical super passionate, enormous potential. And so it kind of starts with that. And then you think about, okay, are there specific niches within things like that that already have rabid fandom? Then that would be kind of the starting point. A lot of it also is, The team, which I spend probably most of my time on operating, actually working with the Port Co's, but the beautiful part of TCG is that there's no bad ideas. So people who are fired up about certain things across the team, that has the opportunity to bubble up as a new theme to explore and see if there's a there there. And I appreciate that so much because it means that you can bring your own personal interests to business, which is always the best intersection, right? So what are your personal interests? Oh my gosh. I, so this, there's, I have some weird ones. So my first one, my first personal interest, I have this thing where I believe All of us are doing the same boring things in our daily lives, whether you live in Portland, Oregon, or Idaho, or New York City, and how do you make those boring things interesting and entertaining to not feel alone? And a good example of that is the home edit to me, where we all have to put stuff away in drawers, and all of our drawers are just dumpster fires, basically. And so they took this really boring thing, which is organizing and made it really joyful. And so I look at commonalities that are universal truths that have the potential to really just, I don't know, it's like make your day a little bit more joyful in this really small, silly way. So that's one that I get excited about. I am also really obsessed with this idea of time management and intention setting. So I don't know if you saw Marie Kondo just came out with her new book. She's starting to publicize it where she's like, hey, look, like I am super over tidying up. I have three kids and like WTF, I do not have time for (laughs) this. I can't manage it. And instead she's saying, hey, maybe look at your time and how you're spending your time." as a way to tidy up in a different way. And I think that that concept of what does success mean to people? How do you ever feel like you're good enough? How do you know how to say no to things? like That is so fascinating to me and powerful. Um, so that's the second. And then the third is anything involving nostalgia. Like, it's just, I can't stop. Like, I'm obsessed with it. I feel like the stuff that's coming out with AI is really cool as a mashup. Like, I just can't turn it off and I can't stop looking for stuff in that area.
1: What's really fascinating that strikes me as you lay out these examples mm-hmm. is that by looking for amazing content brands, in a way, you are basically this anthropologist of where culture and society is right and what people are doing and how they're behaving and what what is shifting in that because basically content and media are just sort of manifestations, right? They're the... Yep entities that people rally around to find community or find entertainment or education
2: around these different shifts and broader cultural. 100%. I think such a good example of that is Epic Gardening, which is part of the portfolio. Like you saw, you know, gardening has been a thing forever, but I feel like the growth that happened over the pandemic was insane. And it's one of those things. It was, we had a culture shift, and Kevin's been doing his thing for a long time. He was incredible at it. And now you have this huge opportunity right? Because there's so many more gardeners in the world. And yet that's just like, okay, culture shifted. Now this is a thing. We can make a consumer brand out of this, right? I think that's that's a, such a good example of what you
1: just shared. And there's also something there. I'm not super familiar with Epic Gardening per se. what, what they have also noticed about content and media is that even if it's something that's been spoken about before, packaging it in a different way or with a different tone can matter so much. I think a lot about women's media. Yes. And I'm fascinated. I'm obsessed with Categories of lean in feminism and then girl boss feminism. And then, yes, no one is like post girl boss. What are we even? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) now we're nothing we're not allowed to be anything just don't do anything i actually think about that a lot i'm like what is the female equivalent of barstool sports like we don't really have that and i'm fascinated by that and it's like a lot of these especially when it comes to more of this sort of professionally oriented and i i think about this also selfishly because this is literally the content i create is you know content for professional women yeah i think the reason my page on tiktok has gained traction is because women are starved for content that acknowledges their ambitions and aspirations and sort of professional lives in a way that is both aspirational and relatable and interesting. And, and we just don't see a lot of that. And so that is just, I don't know, I'm just kind of like word vomiting at this point because I, I think about this a lot, but I'm just, yeah. like, what do you think about this? And what do you think a brand, a media brand that would really look like today for women?
2: Oh my gosh. I mean, that is Partly why I wanted to sync up with TCG solely because I have served women my whole career. Nike was a blip in that radar and I needed to get back to that. It is such a passion point and I'm so glad that you brought that up. It feels like you, if you go too extreme on the girl boss side, then you're alienating a huge percentage of the population who doesn't need to be the boss of anything, but they want to participate in smart conversations. And if you go too far on the other side of, I guess, domestic perfection, then you make everyone feel like horrible about themselves right? because we can't all do all of those things. And so it is interesting to think about how do you uh, inspire and host smart conversations with people so they feel informed, but don't talk down and also include a broader audience. And I love that you're bringing that up. I have had a tough time finding folks Hosting those conversations and facilitating those. Because what I think tends to happen is you find these polarizing bookends, which I think those clearly work. We have lots of examples on both sides, but the modern woman has to do all those things. You're required, or whatever it is. Like, you know, if you have kids, you have to participate in certain parts of life and you have a career and you're in a different system. And I haven't seen anybody sort of talking about that more broadly of, okay, well, how are we juggling all this? Because it's actually not working. It's super hard. So Mm -hmm. I I don't know. It's a great question. I haven't come across any. That would be an incredible human to exist or narrative to exist Marie Kondo's sort of comment was the first time I'd ever even heard someone say, you know what I've evolved right and that was Serena just had that moment like I am obsessed with seeing people out really saying like I've evolved and I'm gonna change and come with me on this new journey like that is so special and yeah you're right I don't know anyone amplifying those conversations And I think what's
1: hard about this because I spent a lot of time thinking about this, I think what's hard is once you find the message that resonates and kind of taps into a moment in the zeitgeist, once you have established it, the zeitgeist shifts yep. under your feet. Because I think the nature of I mean, I don't I don't study like media that targets men nearly as closely, but it's like they're the default. So yeah, their conversation around their own identity and their rights. I mean, arguably now. There is a crisis of trying to figure out their role in society or whatever. But when I diagnose sort of what happened with the girl boss era, it's so fascinating to me because the loyalty and the engagement was so strong. Yes. And almost overnight, it became this backlash. And I almost feel like that was inevitable. It's almost as if their success paved the way for a more sophisticated understanding of mm-hmm. what it means to talk about women and in business and at work and how they can be quote unquote empowered. Our understanding of empowerment became more intersectional and diverse and it got more nuanced and complicated and I think that that is almost a a progression you can't really like pin down it's just always evolving. And so I wonder, like like you said, unless you really, really niche down or Dear Media is also an
2: interesting... I, I was going to say, I was just
1: going to bring them up. They're yeah. they're the closest to what you're talking about. Right, D- Dear Media is interesting. And now they have so many voices. In fact, I'm sometimes like, how does this even work? You have so many shows. I don't know who gets it. In it's the actual. insane.
2: It's awesome.
1: <laughs> in theory, I love what they're doing. I guess they do because they have so many voices and they don't do any really intense like girl bossy things, but also they have different topics. I guess they are the closest... But Mm -hmm. it's still, people love Barstool and it becomes part of their identity. That's not really the same for a Dear Media. They just recognize the brand, but they don't have that affinity.
2: I mean, I'm obsessed with Dear Media. I am a big advocate of that business for so many reasons. But to your point, the polarization is what creates these businesses. And they do. They have something for everyone, which is the right thing to do if you want a big swath of people to listen but then you don't get the passion part, right? You don't get the like cult, you know, following yeah. that you can if you have something polarizing. I think on the flip side of this, the girl boss thing, self identity is such an powerful thing for people. If you can build a brand that people, feel and see themselves in, you have something super special. Right. And I think that girl boss was one of those things at that time. Right. Like everybody wanted to be a boss because it felt so powerful and cool and something we should all aspire to do. But then that gets to a place where are you still equipped to be being the boss of something? (laughs) You know, do you even want that? Or do you feel like you have to do it because there's all this societal pressure I think that's where we started to see this backlash, right? And, and lots of bad stuff out of that, which wasn't necessarily fair, but it happened. I think the dear medias of the world are saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to take that ac- across lots of different right, voices. So then how do I see myself in that? I probably don't, right? I use it as entertainment, but it's not my personality. I don't identify as one of their voices yet. And I think that's probably just the work. That will be uncovered because i think they have all the right things in place to figure that out it's probably a brand exercise
1: I love this conversation. One thing I also think they do well is obviously they're a women's media company, but they don't use hyper overtly gendered language. And one of my Mm. theses about this space of content and media that resonates with women is that we are now moving past anything that is super gendered in language, which is why even with this podcast, I still have people who want to work together on it who pitch me and they say we can build the blah, blah, blah for female founders. I yeah. think the time for that has passed. And that's a funny thing for me to say, especially, but I think that there's almost this shift to, well, if it's truly inclusive and truly pro-woman, then it almost would not use that language because yeah. in doing so, it feels still very narrow. And so even as a creator in this space, I'm always trying to figure out what is the language that still lets people know, you know, I'm trying to amplify mainly female-founded brands and smart women like you, but also not make it this like rah-rah, like, hyper girl bossy thing, even though I was, by the way, I was hyper <laughs> hyper girl boss, but I was so intimate. I love Sophia and I love what they did, but we can see that it no longer resonates in the same way. So.
2: Right. I guess if you think about, it goes back to brand, right? It's like all the big brands that we, we get excited about, I think have to stand for something bigger than gender. They have to And even if I think Sphinx is a great example, or it's like very clearly women's focus, now they're broader and their apparel business is pretty big. And so what's the thing that I think in your, you know, in your own business, like what's the thing that, yes, you want to use women as the catalyst to accelerate, but what's the bigger, broader thing, the stories that you want to tell? And how can you use that bigger thing to include more people in the conversation? right? Every female that's ever raised venture capital has their stories of like, oh, I feel like it was harder and blah, blah, blah. The reality is, boil it down, you have to find people that connect with your pain point and your mission. And if that's gendered, you're just cutting and narrowing those things versus trying to be something that universally people can see themselves in regardless of what they identify as. And I don't know, for some reason, I am obsessed with supporting women because I understand that consumer probably better than most. And because it's a lived experience I have. I also though know that every business has a reality that they can't necessarily just serve one particular area and get really, really big. Yes, women's businesses are huge and massive, but I do think it particularly in media, it's like if you want to do something in business, well, men and women both work in business, right? And that just it again, it depends on what how big you want this to be, what gets you fired up, right? Is it just the female? lens to these things which is absolutely interesting and fascinating or is it about the path that the women take like I'm curious And now I'm interviewing you. But how do you see the stories that you want to tell? Like, what is that bigger thing that you want to tell? This is such a good question. Yeah, I want to evolve and scale as a creator.
1: I would say that I do feel such a deep affinity. I mean, I I love women and I want to help them. And that is just part of who I am. And probably goes back to like, you know, being raised by a single immigrant mom and everything. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, the thing that really fires me up is kind of a funny way to put it. But it's almost like we are living in a capital system. We have certain institutions that not everybody understands or finds accessible. I really love the idea of talking to smart people who understand and are experienced in different parts of this business landscape and having conversations with them that can be interesting to other people in the industry, insiders, but also be somewhat accessible to outsiders and make them feel like we're pulling out a chair at the table. So that is more just we're living in this kind of a system. How can we at least enhance literacy around it and engagement around it and interest in it? How can we make it entertaining? Because that, I think, hits on something a little more universal. And also, I I just feel very strongly about education and, and yep. not make keeping this information and to take a venture as one example that is not obvious to anyone but people are hearing these terms and hearing about VC and hearing about startup founders and seeing all these docuseries how can we actually like open the kimono and help them understand how it works so they feel more empowered to navigate the society oh my god that's so special
2: I mean I joke looking back at my career again like every female founder has these special stories where it's like oh I had to pitch hundreds of people and I certainly went through that and now being on the other side of the table the reality is like you're dating right when you're pitching and you have to find people who get fired up about the thing that you're fired up about if your thing is a super gendered thing mine was personal shopping like right it's like okay that is by nature gonna limit your pool of people who get fired up about it I think understanding some of those realities just makes you smarter and I think that's probably one of the aspects that you're trying to speak to right is like how do you make people feel smarter but don't use the insider baseball language because it, It makes people feel stupid. And I think the way that you're doing that through TikTok and all of these accessible channels, it allows you to lower the friction for people to enter the conversation, which is so special and unique. I think the bigger, prodder questions of, okay, so does that mean it's just limited to women who want to listen to it? It might be. Honestly, it's a massive, you know, 50% of the population, right? Like it's enormous. But there's so many people that in business, right? Like you're not going to only just do business with women. Maybe some people have that luxury but most of us don't. And so I think you're providing this amazing toolkit for people to have bigger, broader conversations maybe than they've ever had before, you know, or ever thought that they could have. But yeah, you're like taking insider baseball and lowering the friction so that it feels not as scary. That's really special. I think that's big though. I think that's yeah. bigger than just like, I'm a female founder, this is my jam, you know?
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, that's, that's basically what I want to do. And that's why also even the MA conversations are so interesting because that's something we don't hear about a lot right now we're to have more conversations about you know how to raise capital and whatnot but that is something that we see headlines and that's kind of it and then who knows but that that's is right that's an important mechanism of capitalism basically
2: it's real and you know what really sucked when I went through it is I didn't have a single person that I could call you know like I came from fashion like there were people doing deals like that for me to call and so I felt really alone it was horrible and you know one of my missions is okay how do I help people not feel that way because it was off for. You know, when I went through it. And my hope is in doing stuff like this and in and t- trying to be more vocal of okay, what are the expectations? What's it gonna be like? What are the things that when you as a founder and your investors are not gonna be aligned on? Because those are very different when you get into the M&A space and just how to have a framework for it. Like you're right, no one talks about that part because it's so few people go through it, right? It's not a big pool of people that ever have the chance and the experience, <laughs> whether it's painful or not, of even approaching conversations like that. Totally. So totally right. And I love the space that you're sitting in because it's a lot of like handshakes and closed realms that most people don't even know what this stuff is and exactly, it's yeah. very special the space that you're talking about thank you
1: yeah i mean i feel super fired up about it been really enjoying this whole
2: journey in it and there's
1: a lot of learning to exactly find that balance between you know to some extent being somewhat niche helps you build deeper affinity and cultivate a cult brand but then on the other hand you also want to have scalability so that is a, a fine line and i'm trying to figure out how to straddle it so
2: yeah and you know the beauty is you do you and there's people like tcg who help, you know, and lots of different investors, but people who sit here and think about what's the strategic play in this bigger, broader narrative. And sometimes you don't have to do that by yourself. There is a quote that I learned at Nike that I will take for me for the rest of my life that Michael Jordan said, talent wins games, teamwork wins championships. And sometimes you think as an entrepreneur, okay, yeah, I got to build this big thing. I have all this pressure. We're going to find this narrative. It's going to grow big. But sometimes it's like, oh, I can team up with other people who have these different narratives and we make a bigger thing. So don't be scared of of those types of conversations. And I think it's super interesting when you get to a place where your niche even matters to people. So it's like amazing and incredible. And there's only great things that come out of that. I'm going to take that as a a
1: sign that I can add you to my brain trust of people I can ask about their thoughts on media.
2: Anytime. I'm a master of strategic narrative. If you need to spit that out, like, you know who to call. But yeah, no, I think the space that you sit in, I wish existed when I was going through it. And I wish more women and people who have been through it can share the dirty parts of it because it is super lonely and hard. And the more knowledge, the, the more powerful we all are.
1: Amen. Well, I started to wrap up. I feel like i have to you for literally literal There's so much we can unpack. Maybe we'll bring you on for part two. But for now, I think maybe a good place to end is what advice would you give your
2: 22-year-old self? Oh my gosh. Screw the logos. Follow your curiosity. I mean, we all have these resumes that are just full of logos that we think make us something. But in reality, finding what you're really good at, learning from the smartest people and figuring it out and doing the very best work you can is what's going to, I think, bring you more joy.
1: Amazing. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. And is there anywhere people can find you on the internet, on social media?
2: Yeah, I share weird stuff that I'm interested in on LinkedIn and then of course, Twitter. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you.